chapter 9 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. I want to sum up the first 16 verses since we looked at this last week. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into the account midstream, and uh, I don't want everybody to just be lost. But uh, you will recall that uh, chapter 9 introdu- introduces us to Saul, who is also called Paul. Paul is his Greek name. Saul is his Hebrew name, and they are used interchangeably. But he is referred to as Saul here, and uh, he hates the church. He sees the church of Jesus Christ uh, as a a sect of Judaism, and he is a very strict Pharisee, uh, very zealous for his faith, and so he seeks to stamp out Christianity, the early church, and so he gets permission from the chief priests and the, the, uh, the council, and he goes and begins to persecute the church, and even going from city to city, Uh, seeking out Christians to arrest, and and many of them uh, put to death. Well, he's going up to Damascus in Syria to go and arrest Christians there. And on the way, uh, he is struck down by a great light from heaven and a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And of course, it is Jesus Christ whom he is persecuting. And he is struck blind, and he is led into Damascus, where for three days he uh, is without sight, and he doesn't even eat or drink, but spends time in prayer. In the meantime, God appears to a disciple there in Damascus named Ananias and tells him, look, there's a fellow named uh, Saul from Tarsus who is is, uh, on Straight Street, and I want you to go down there. And I want you to uh, to lay your hands on him and pray for him. And uh, he's expecting you because he has been given a vision that you are going to show up. And Ananias is a little nervous because he's heard of Saul's reputation uh, that he has been putting Christians to death. And, of course, being a Christian, uh, he, he doesn't desire to be put to death. But uh, he goes anyway, and we pick up that part of the story at verse 17 with Paul there at his home or at a house in Damascus, blind, searching for answers. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Saul, after his blinding encounter with the living Christ, uh, he is led to Damascus where he takes the next steps in his new life. The journey he is taking from murderous opponent of Jesus Christ and his, and his church to become a follower of Christ, defender of the Christian faith and missionary of the church is one that we can find described here. How does it happen, this transition? Now, Paul was certainly a bit of a unique case uh, owing to his important place in the annals of Christian history, but there are elements here that are true of every person who, as Paul states in Colossians 1, has been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, like Paul was, like Saul was. There's a template here. Uh, for every Christian's experience. And I want us to examine this template today. And I want us, as we examine what happened to Saul from that day on the road to Damascus until he heads back to Tarsus, uh, uh, as we study that and, and examine that, uh, I want us to compare our own personal experience with, with Saul's experience. Uh, and then, uh, as we do that, if you find yourself identifying with Saul's experience, then I want you to be encouraged that uh, this has been and is your experience. It's always an encouragement to remember the work Jesus Christ has accomplished in your life. But if on uh, examination you find Saul's experience foreign to you, well then, you should, as Paul told the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you really are in the faith. Now, it's also possible, and, and probably likely, because this was more my experience, that you will identify with some of these marks, some of these characteristics, and not with others. And if so, you should further examine and, and seek to remedy that deficiency. Well, we're going to look at three things today, and I've given you an outline uh, if you uh, picked one up. Three points. Conversion is necessary for a Christian's birth. And then secondly, fellowship is necessary for a Christian's growth. And then finally, service is necessary for a Christian's life. Well, let's look at conversion first of all. Of course, this is the famous account of Paul's or Saul's conversion and that term conversion has entered today's secular mainstream parlance and it tends to hold negative connotations, doesn't it? Now, for Christians, it has positive connotations. We, we love the term conversion. 
But generally speaking these days, people are offended if they feel that you are trying to convert them to Christianity especially. Attempting to convert someone is considered taboo by many today. What right have you to do that? The ironic thing about that is uh, people who are offended when you try to convert them or who try to tell you that it is wrong to try to convert someone, they're actually uh, doing the same thing. Uh, They're actually trying to convert everyone else to their secularist position. They're saying, look, my position is right, that it is a, a bad thing to convert people, and therefore you should stop doing that. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to convert you to their position of saying that it is wrong to try to proselytize others. It's usually the case with opponents of Christianity that they're doing exactly what they're telling Christians not to do. Anyway, little side trail there. Let's talk about conversion for a moment. This wonderful term, conversion, we use this term in a very specific and technical sense. And I want you to understand it because it is very important that we understand what we're talking about when we use the term conversion. When we speak of Christian conversion, uh, we, we say that it has two parts. The word conversion really uh, is, a, is a word that encompasses two things. And the, the two things are rep- repentance and faith. Repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the two sides of the coin called conversion. John Murray says in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, that repentance and faith are twin sisters who are conjoined. You do not have true conversion unless both repentance and faith are present. And he goes on to say, and I've given you the quote in the outline, the faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. The interdependence of faith and repentance can be readily seen when we remember that faith is faith in Christ for salvation from sin. But if faith is directed to salvation from sin, there must be hatred of sin and the desire to be saved from it. Such hatred of sin involves repentance, which essentially consists in turning from sin unto God. Again, if we remember that repentance is turning from sin unto God, the turning to God implies faith in the mercy of God as revealed in Christ. It is impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. So these two things go together. So that's the technical use of the term. Now, Saul was converted here on the Damascus Road, and, and uh, you know who knows when he actually goes from darkness to light, somewhere in the midst there between the, 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 the bright light on the road to Damascus and when Ananias shows up and he's filled with the Spirit. Saul was converted, and, and here's how he describes it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thank him... I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So you see the elements there. Paul is recognizing his his sin, and that he has been changed by Christ, that, that he has uh, come to Christ and that he has been shown mercy by Jesus Christ. So both elements of faith and repentance as he recounts what happened to him from Christ. Before he was converted, Saul did not recognize that he was a sinner or that Christ was even alive. Uh, in Philippians, he states that uh, when he's talking about his his other uh, his life before he became a Christian, and you know he said I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a tribe of Benjamin. He lists off all these things, and the very last thing he says was, was that according to the law, blameless. In other words, uh, he, he was uh, in his own estimation about as righteous a person as you could get. So it wasn't like he was struggling with a conscience that was bothering him about sin. He thought he was doing the right thing by persecuting Christians. He believed that they were a deviant sect of Judaism, a sect of the Nazarene, as it is called in Acts chapter 24. And in Acts 26, when he's giving his testimony before Agrippa, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So see, he was convinced he was in the right about everything in his life. But then he's confronted with a living Christ. The voice on the road to Damascus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replied, who are you, Lord? I mean, he's, maybe he's thinking, is this Jesus? Because he's dead. And really convinced that he was dead and that these people who are following him were... Uh, fanatical. He could not fathom that it was Christ who was speaking to him there on the way to Damascus. But once confronted with Christ, now he knows by personal experience that Jesus is indeed alive. And if Jesus is alive, then for Saul, that changes everything. And it did change everything. This Jesus Christ who was crucified by men had, in fact, been exalted by God and is Lord of all. And if Jesus is Lord of all, <clears throat> then he must be followed on his terms. The former zeal he had against Christ shifts to great zeal for Christ because he recognizes that he was completely wrong and that Christ is the Lord. And so he repents and begins to put his trust in Christ. A great transformation as he encounters the living Christ. So once Saul has been blinded and led to Damascus, we find him fasting, praying to the Lord as he reflects on what has happened to him, certainly looking for answers. And then Ananias shows up and lays his hands on Saul, which was a physical symbol of the invisible power of the Holy Spirit coming to heal Saul from his blindness and dwell within him. 
The scales falling from his eyes were also a symbol that Saul's spiritual blindness had been overcome. Those things he couldn't see before, he sees clearly now. And he could now understand the truth through the Holy Spirit's influence. That's what happened to Paul. He was converted. And we have to ask the question, has this happened to you? Have you encountered the living Christ? Have you considered his claims and who he is? Have you made him your Lord and your master? Have you come to that place where you recognize your own sin and need for him as the only one who can cleanse you from your sin? And are you submitting to his rule in your life? And do you see evidence that the Holy Spirit, like there was evidence in Paul's life, that the Holy Spirit is at work changing you? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians talks about love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Radical change in Paul's life that took place. God promises change for anyone who encounters the living Christ and turns to him as Lord and Savior. If this is not your experience today, turn to him, turn to the living Christ, and he will cleanse you from sin, and your life will be in his hands, his everlasting, capable hands. Saul was changed, converted from an enemy of Jesus Christ to a Christian through the power of God. And if he can change Saul, who was killing Christians, if he can change that man, so violently opposed to Christianity, then he can change you, he can change me, uh, he can change anyone. No one is beyond his power. He has the power to change anyone. That's, that's not the question at all. Well, Saul's experience did not stop there. The very next thing he does is get baptized. Then he spends time with the believers in Damascus, and, and this is our second point. Fellowship is necessary for Christian growth. Uh, we we are, are born into the kingdom through conversion, through regeneration, and then we need to carry on in fellowship in the Christian church. Now, I remember speaking to a man in a churchyard that was in the center of the town in England where we lived. Uh, the uh, ancient church building we were looking at sparked our conversation and upon hearing my wonderful accent he uh he asked what in the world was i doing in england and uh, of course i explained to him that i was planning a church in town and and i was actually considering using this this very old building it's actually the oldest building in town uh that was available and uh, didn't end up using it but uh, that sparked our conversation and, of course, the man proceeded to, to talk about his own spiritual journey uh, a little bit, and he proceeded to tell me that he did not believe in organized religion and that he could worship God in the privacy of his own home as well as any place. Well, this type of thinking is prevalent today amongst many people and cannot be more wrong-headed or unbiblical. And I say that unapologetically because it's just a, a silly thought, to be honest with you. Let's think about this for a moment from Paul's experience, Saul's experience. The first thing the text says here after the scales fall from his eyes was that he rose and was baptized. 
This was significant in Saul's life as well as in the life of any person who comes to Christ and publicly uh, is brought forward for baptism. In our larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is on the outline before you, the question is asked, what is baptism? And this is a wonderful answer that really uh, hits on all the points. Baptism, it says, is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself, of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his Spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. I love that. I love that stress on being holy and only the Lord's. Baptism is a public act that says to the world that Saul has been changed radically. He's a new person with completely different values than he had before. Once Saul tried to eliminate the church, now Saul was united to the church. He was united to Christ and his cause. He was now not simply at peace with the church. No, he was a member of the church. He was now identified with Christ and his cause. What a transformation that is being proclaimed publicly in baptism. Now, if you have been baptized as a child or as an adult, you are a member of the covenant community of the church. Of course, children are non-communing members until they can examine themselves and, and profess their faith on their own, but they are members of the covenant and they, like anyone who has been baptized, has an obligation to identify with Christ and his cause, to put their faith, to turn from their sin, and if and put their faith in Christ and turn from their sin, and if you break or ignore that covenant, then there are curses to which you are liable. The Bible speaks of that. Anytime we see someone baptized, we should remember our own baptism and remember that we belong to Christ. We are His, and we're obligated to follow Him. If you have not been baptized, then you should consider uniting to Christ and his church. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He is the mediator between man and God, and his kingdom is the only kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. All other kingdoms are going to pass away. And the expression of his kingdom on earth is the church. So do not tell me the church is unimportant or that you can worship uh, on the golf course as well as you can worship anywhere else. It just can't be done. You have to be connected to the church. Jesus has established his church. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And he's promised to build his church. And, they, and he's told us that the gates of hell are going to try to, to beat down the church, but I'm going to build it anyway. That's how important it is to him. And it ought to be important to anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the sign and symbol of someone being included in the church. A Christian publicly unites with the church of Christ, which is his kingdom. 
Well, Saul was baptized. He's, he's uh, identified, connected, united with the people of God and with Christ. But he also continued in fellowship with the church. He joined it and he united to it and he continues to meet with it. He attended church. It tells us that after he was baptized, he was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. This time would have been important for Saul's growth and encouragement, just as it is for any Christian who has ever lived. Notice verse 22 there. It speaks of Saul being strengthened. It doesn't specifically say how he was strengthened in this particular instance, but since he was strengthened for his ministry, one can assume it was through the typical means of growth and grace that we have. Spending time in God's Word, uh, participating in the sacraments. When we, he was baptized, that's one of the sacraments there that he participated in. Praying and doing these things in fellowship with other believers in the church. The church is where all these things happen. And when we separate ourselves from the church, we don't get the benefit of the means of grace, the means of growth. The Puritans were fond of comparing the, the church to a, a greenhouse. You know, a greenhouse is where you put plants and the, the temperature is just right and, and uh, you know, you're shielded from the negative elements like cold and too much rain and what have you or too much sun. In the church, uh, it's a special place where you can be fed and strengthened in growth. And the, the elements are there in just the right amount. So I want to encourage you to be a part of the church, to get involved in the church. If your involvement in the church wanes, then your growth is going to be stunted. The writer of Hebrews said, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we must encourage one another, and the only way we can do that is if we talk to one another and meet with one another and we talk about God's Word and we pray together. We have to have these things. Paul had that for some days, it tells us. There in verse 19, now that, if we compare that to his other testimonies throughout the book of Acts, and he mentions it in Galatians and Corinthians as well, uh, that some days there is at least part of three years. When he went to Damascus, he was in and out of Damascus and, and a, between Damascus and Arabia uh, before he went to Jerusalem for the first time three years later. It wasn't for three years that he actually went to Jerusalem that's recorded here. It seems rather quickly in our text. But when you'll notice that when he does go to Jerusalem, what's the first thing he does? He seeks out the disciples. He seeks to connect with the church there. Now I want to challenge everybody here to get more involved in worship and prayer and Bible study than you currently are. And if you say, well, it's not possible because I come to everything. Well, good. If you can say that, that's great. But if, but if there's another way that you can expose yourself to God's Word, I want to encourage you to do that, uh, to expose yourself to encouragement from God's people, uh, to have opportunities to pray. That's always a good thing and will be to your benefit. And not just to your benefit, but to the other people who are there's benefit. Now, you may not have a large public ministry like Saul. Ananias did not. 
Uh, he was faithful to do just what God asked him to do, to go and meet and welcome Saul. And that one meeting had a major impact on Saul's life and even on the history of the Christian church. If you think about the impact Paul had. Who knows what difference you might be making just by showing up at a prayer service or a WIC meeting or youth group or Sunday school. See, these things just underscores how important the church and Christian fellowship is for the believer. Now, another thing. What if Saul did not have Ananias come to his house? Or what if Barnabas, Barnabas did not speak up for Saul to the disciples in Jerusalem? See, these men, Ananias and Barnabas, were instrumental in encouraging Saul's growth in Christ to the benefit of the church through the ages, even today. Ananias and Barnabas, we are grateful to him because we have uh, the New Testament that Paul wrote. If he had been discouraged early on, who knows what had happened. Of course, God's in control of those things, we know. But God used Ananias and Barnabas as encouragers to Saul. And what do they do for Saul? And here's an important point. They overcame their objections to his past and welcomed him into the church. Some people weren't so sure. Ananias wasn't even sure at first. But you see the connection here. May we as a church never reject someone who has come to Jesus Christ from a dark past. Welcome them in. Your encouragement you know, you don't know what, what they're going to do. They, they might go and, and save the world. And it's all because of your encouragement. Ananias disappears. He appears to Saul, does his thing, and then we never hear from him again. But I'm sure that he continued to be a, a faithful disciple there in Damascus. But it's just not publicly. Now, there's a brief third point I'll just make because I've, I've touched on it last week and I won't belabor it. Service is necessary for a Christian's life. You'll see there that Saul immediately began telling others about Jesus. He was a witness. And uh, because he had uh, gifts, certain gifts, he was a public speaker. I mean, he had basically a Ph.D. in Old Testament from his Pharisaical studies under Gamaliel. He had spent his childhood learning the Scriptures. And so once the Holy Spirit enlightened his mind, uh, he could understand it and see it and, and see how it was all about Christ. And he went into the synagogue and he just wore the people out who tried to oppose Christ. They, he was confounding them with his knowledge of Christ and his abilities there. Well, for us, the application is simple. Talk about Christ to others. It doesn't mean we have to get up and preach or, or give a dissertation like Paul might have given to, uh, to the synagogues of the day. Uh, but we can share Jesus with others, be as witnesses like Saul and the other followers in the early church and throughout the centuries, but use your gifts as well. The Bible tells us that every believer has been given a spiritual gift to encourage and build up and strengthen the church. Now, some like Saul's are very public. Others like Ananias, they just go into the you know, have a moment and then disappear into the background and continue working faithfully without much acknowledgement. Each has a different but important part. All the parts are vital. We are interdependent in the church of Christ. We need one another. You need my gifts, I need your gifts. And it's true of all of us. Are you using your gifts for the church?
God will give you the ability to do something if you're a believer. All you must do is provide the availability. Have you made yourselves available to be used by Christ in something, anything, anything that you can do? You don't have to feel like I'm especially great at it, but if, you're a, if you have the ability and you're available, then God can use you. And that's the demystification of spiritual gifts. You can do it. If you're available, do it. Don't hesitate. Well, finally, let's look at uh, verse 31, where it wraps everything up. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, when people use their gifts, uh, the church is multiplied. And, then, and that means more people were converted, back to point one. It means more converts joined the fellowship of believers and more followers of Christ gathered together to use their gifts for the building up of one another and the church of Jesus Christ. And the cycle continues. And it has continued up to this very day. And may we be a church that continues that cycle of seeing conversions, of seeing uh, spiritual growth as we meet together, of using our gifts for building up one another and the church of Jesus Christ. Does the, does the church continue in you uh, is the question we need to address ourselves today. Let's pray together.